Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Thanks to our listeners, we're up to 92 episodes of Grading the Nutmeg. And as you spend more time at home, be sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, first-person stories, interviews with authors of new books on Connecticut history, and field visits to museums across the state are all included. In this episode, architectural historian Mary Donahue digs deep to uncover which local libraries in Connecticut were funded by robber baron, steel tycoon, and philanthropist Andrew Carnegie at the beginning of the 20th century. Why did the city of New Haven turn down a generous gift of $300,000 from Carnegie? in 1903, meant to build a large public library. How did communities apply for library construction grants from Carnegie, and what were the requirements? What were the strings attached to accepting the money? And what has become of these well-built landmarks in Connecticut? Find out from guest Robert Kinney, Outreach Services Librarian at the Connecticut State Library and pastor of Mount Hope Temple Church in New Haven, what it takes to adaptively reuse an almost 100-year-old library building for a new purpose. Hi, it's Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Today, like many of you, I'm working from home following Connecticut's Stay Safe, Stay Home initiative. One of the most fun parts of working on a magazine is the ability to pick out stories to research and write that pique my interest. So unlike many of our podcast episodes where Grading the Nutmeg is out in the field, today I'm going to share one of my favorite stories from the magazine from home. Here's the story of Bricks, Bucks, and Books, Mr. Carnegie's Connecticut Libraries. My home state of Indiana has more Carnegie Libraries than any other state, 164 in total. Let's see how Connecticut stacks up. Oh, and by the way, he said his last name, Carnegie, but nowadays, as in Carnegie Hall, most people pronounce it Carnegie. Could a man celebrated as a steel tycoon and reviled as an enemy of the working man also invest in making free public libraries across the English-speaking world a reality? Andrew Carnegie did just that, funding the construction of 1,679 public libraries in 1,412 communities in the United States. Known as the patron saint of libraries, he funded 2,509 library buildings throughout the English-speaking world. Born in Dunfermline, Scotland, Carnegie's father was a skilled weaver, a trade soon made obsolete by mechanized textile production. Carnegie's family then moved to Allegheny, Pennsylvania in 1848. Without the advantages or connections of a wealthy family, Andrew Carnegie nevertheless rose to become one of the 19th century's richest men. Applying his formidable business insights and skills, Carnegie revolutionized the process of making steel by managing production from beginning to end, starting with the ownership of the necessary raw materials and ending with ownership in the railroads required to ship the finished product. But in addition to its immense profitability, the Carnegie Steel Company experienced turbulent relations with its labor force, culminating in the violence of the Homestead Strike of 1892, a strike that broke steel workers' unionization attempts and depressed worker salaries. 
So what was his commitment to philanthropy all about? Carnegie believed that a man should spend the first half of his life accumulating wealth and the second half giving it away. Carnegie published his views in 1889 in a two-part essay known as Wealth, later published in 1900 as a book called The Gospel of Wealth. As he saw it, wealth was a responsibility placed in his hands to oversee for the public good. He intended to be a scientific philanthropist. His most repeated line was, quote, the man who dies rich dies disgraced, unquote. Carnegie began to fund projects with close connections to his own life, and the first library he formed in 1881 was in his Scottish hometown, followed by library buildings in Pennsylvania. Carnegie's generosity benefited colleges, concert halls, like Carnegie Hall, 1891 in New York City, for example, donations of over 8,000 pipe organs to churches across the country, and hospitals. But his personal confidence in the value of public libraries made the phrase Carnegie Library still relevant in small towns across America. Carnegie's interest in books might have gone back to his father's deep respect for books and his own pleasure as a working boy using the J. Anderson Library of Allegheny City on Saturday afternoons. Carnegie began what he termed his wholesale period of library philanthropy in 1898. His private secretary, James Bertram, was charged with reviewing requests from towns and cities and managing all the administrative duties related to the library program, which never had a formal name. New England, the first region to establish a strong and free school system, already had well-established public libraries and received relatively few Carnegie gifts. But 11 Connecticut towns received generous grants to fund their libraries, primarily in towns that had industrial districts with rapidly growing populations of workers. Applying for a library building. As a grant director for the Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office for 30 years, I really identify with the task of explaining to potential grantees what the requirements of a state or federal grant program will be. For Carnegie Libraries, the criteria for selection included several simple but rigidly mandated requirements. A schedule of questions, a questionnaire basically, was sent to each community inquiring about a library grant. Bertram estimated the cost of a library at about 2 to $3 per resident. Tired of getting outrageous population counts, he began to rely on the U.S. Census for these figures. The program only funded the construction of the new library building and required the town to commit to providing the equivalent of 10% of the Carnegie Construction Grant annually for maintenance. This included the cost of books, the staff salaries, furniture, and care for the building. So, for a building grant of $20,000, Carnegie expected an annual maintenance budget of $2,000 in perpetuity. This is what we would call skin in the game now. Formal requests could only be made by municipal officers, not women's groups, civic organizations, or library boards. The cost of the building lot and its location was up to the town. Small towns under 1,000 citizens were not eligible. The building could not be used for anything except a public library. No art galleries, recreation halls, or town offices. Although many people believe that Carnegie required that the building be named after him, that's not true. Nor is the idea that all Carnegie libraries look the same. James Bertram began to request architectural plans, blueprints, after about 1908. Bertram discouraged and sometimes rejected plans that wasted space and money on grandiose entrance halls or big domes. 
The program also did not require a specific architectural style or architect. But key architectural elements of a successful application, however, included a high basement area, including a lecture hall, furnace room, restrooms, and workroom, and a first floor that had abundant natural light, separate reading rooms for children and adults, a librarian's desk for circulation, and the stacks. Bertram did consult top architects and produced a booklet of floor plans to assist communities with their planning. Municipalities had to confirm that they had all the funds available to construct the building. Payments would then be made as the building progressed. When the foundation was complete, for example, uh, they would get a check, and after its dedication, they would get a check. Carnegie was a firm believer in the value of branch libraries that could serve the working class in their neighborhoods, and five of Connecticut's Carnegie libraries are branch libraries in Bridgeport and in New Haven. Three Connecticut communities applied for Carnegie library grants but were unsuccessful. In the town of Darien, it was voted down by the actual voters, the electorate. In Deep River, the council was against the 10% uh, support rule, and in New Canaan, they could never surmount their architectural problems. In 1915, the board of the Carnegie Corporation commissioned a study on the successes and challenges of Carnegie-funded libraries. Public libraries had become an expected civic institution. Although many communities bent a few of the rules, public libraries served as community centers, offered all manner of educational programming, and played a part in the professionalization of the library profession by offering widespread employment to librarians. When the Carnegie Library program ended in 1919, a total of $41,748,689 had been provided to 1,689 public libraries in 1,419 communities. Connecticut's 11 Carnegie libraries all remain standing, with six still being used as libraries, two used as churches, two used as offices, and one adaptively reused as a museum. Five of the library buildings have benefited from the Connecticut State Library's construction grant program that provides funding for library expansion and also improved accessibility, thus allowing the historic buildings to grow and serve modern needs. Let's take a look at New Haven's Carnegie Libraries first, since they have the most, three. In 1903, the Hartford Current reported that Andrew Carnegie has informally offered the city of New Haven $300,000 for a new library. A member of the library board of directors had sent a request to him. Sounds like a great idea, right? Carnegie granted large sums of money, for example, for New York City, Chicago, and Washington, D.C.'s main libraries. But in New Haven, this caused a firestorm of comment. And then The Current printed a long editorial that rejected the idea that New Haven should ever accept Carnegie's money. Some of the reasons given were that Carnegie had no connection to New Haven, that he was part of the nouveau riche class of robber barons and too uncouth for an old patrician city like New Haven, and that if New Haven wanted a library, somebody from New Haven should endow it. So somehow applying for Carnegie's money was rejected, and in 1906, Miss Mary Ives gave the city $300,000 to build the library on its current site, which is right on the New Haven Green. But the Library Board of Directors still wanted to take advantage of the Carnegie's library program to help them provide branch libraries to the rapidly growing industrial neighborhoods with many new immigrants. In an article special to the New York Times, the headline is, quote, 
Carnegie gift under fire. New Haven critical of library offer and may reject it, unquote. As soon as the library board of directors asked for $65,000 for three branch libraries, a storm of criticism broke out across the newspapers, stating that New Haven should be able to buy its own libraries. The Board of Finance balked at providing 10% annual maintenance fee, and several workingmen's organizations protested against taking money really from a foe of organized labor. But somehow Willis Stetson, head librarian, and the Library Board of Directors prevailed, and a Carnegie grant was accepted for the Fairhaven branch of the library. The Fairhaven neighborhood had residents that had lobbied for the library, and they had raised about $1,500 toward its construction. It was dedicated with ceremonies presided over by Mayor Kampner. This branch is the only one of the three still to be used as a library. The architect was Leone Robinson, a popular New Haven architect. The library has a large addition on the rear, and the entranceway has been moved to the side, but it still maintains a strong architectural presence on Grand Avenue. The success of the Fairhaven Library sparked interest in two more branches. The chief librarian's report in 1922 reads in part, quote, The great advantages which have followed the new building for the Fairhaven Branch Library emphasize the need for the new buildings for Dixwell and Congress branches. The accommodations for these branches are so inadequate as regards room, giving not, not space enough for books or people to say nothing of other essential features, as well as being so shabby in appearance that they may fairly be called disgraceful for a city like New Haven, unquote. Strong words in print from the chief librarian. The city had accepted $20,000 from Carnegie in 1916 for two branches, but had dragged its feet until well after the First World War was over. Although the money was granted in 1913 for the Dixwell branch and the Davenport branch, the series of trying circumstances included site controversies to the unavailability of building materials and labor during the war years, and it really dragged on and delayed the opening of these branches. The Dixwell branch opened in 1922, a fine neoclassical-style red brick building with light cast-stone balusters and an elaborate original entranceway designed by the architectural firm of Norton and Townsend. Here's the costs involved dating from 1917 when the lot was purchased for over $4,000 through the construction costs of $41,130 for a total of $49,809. Now 20000 of that was covered by the Carnegie Grant, so a little less than half. Now, Alfred Martyr, well-known in New Haven as the chair of the New Haven Peace Commission and the Connecticut Freedom Trail Committee, uh, he's now 98 years old, recalled, quote, In order to persuade the Dixwell Branch Library to allow him to go over to the adult reading section of the library, first he had to convince the librarian that he had read every book in the separate children's reading room. While his parents worked hard at running a grocery store during the Great Depression, L spent hours after school at this branch of the library. And yes, he did convince the librarian to allow him over into the adult section. But here's where a twist comes in on this Carnegie Library building. When I was researching the Carnegie Libraries for the magazine, I had an unusual call from my friend Robert Kenny, who is the Outreach Services Librarian for the Connecticut State Library. We normally work together on promoting the vast holdings of the State Library and that of the Museum of Connecticut History, but this time was different. We'll be talking to Robert by telephone. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. 
Hi, Mary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was surprised to get a call from you that day that said your church was a Carnegie Library. Now, you're the pastor of the Mount Hope Temple Church. Can you tell me more about this? Yes, yes. I, um, I, I remember uh, seeing or hearing about information that you're looking for regarding the Carnegie Libraries that were in Connecticut. And, and our church was basically the old Stetson Library in New Haven, Connecticut. And um, our, our, our congregation basically um, moved from uh, 96 Oak Street in New Haven. And then from there, we located to 178 Shelton Avenue. And it wasn't until about 1972 when Bishop Jeremiah Covington purchased the building. And the building had been uh, burnt out by fire. And he purchased the building and they went in and they did work. And they restored the building to make it a church. And in 1974 was when we dedicated it on uh, March 31st, actually, 1974. And it became Marble Temple Church, United Holy Church of America. Who's in your congregation? How was your congregation formed? Um, a lot of our members uh, are Bishop and his wife, our, our, our late Bishop, Bishop Jeremiah Covington. They came up from North Carolina. And he had a vision in terms of establishing a church within New Haven. And so he and his wife, um, when they started out on Oak Street, um, he continued with the vision. And the vision grew until um, eventually we ended up to where we are now, which is uh, 555 Dixville Avenue. And um, so it was basically his vision uh, from North Carolina. Uh, they relocated, and um, the Lord told them to, to move and, and to come here and to to carry on with this vision. Now, that would be part of the Great Migration, really, a big movement of African-Americans from the South to the North, right? Yes, yes, absolutely, yes, yes. And that was, and, and interestingly enough, a lot of members in our congregation, some of the older members, most of us have Southern roots, and it's from the Great Migration. In fact, we used to have this thing called the State Rally, where we would have different states people from different states within the congregation represent each other and we would have these, these this competition thing and the majority of the church was from North Carolina South Carolina and from the south there was a, a, a great a great um, influx of, of, of members from the south in our church you know it's interesting because the Dixwell neighborhood a little bit before your congregation bought the, the building in the 60s the Dixwell neighborhood was a centerpiece of the city of New Haven's urban renewal projects they had projects that were take, undertaken by the New Haven Redevelopment Agency in the 1950s and 60s. And the program's aim was to clear slums and rebuild cities. So there's a Dixwell Community Center known as the Q House, as well as housing and churches that are, were constructed in, near your church on sites that were cleared by the city. And those buildings are very modern. But luckily, your building was not demolished. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that um, the challenges actually uh, for for maintaining our building is that by it being a Carnegie Library and considered a um, a national historical preservation building, we couldn't make any type of modifications on the outside of the building. And so, um, in fact, um, we if anything, we would have to kind of keep up with the architect of the building. Um, to its previous or original state. And so that, that has been a challenge in the past, dealing with the, the roof and, and all types of different issues. 
but um, but yeah, we, we've managed to, to keep it up to, to its Carnegie form. <laughs> as we are ta- we're talking a little bit here on our podcast about how these were built as libraries where he had a children's reading room and an adult reading room and a meeting space in the basement. How did you convert the, the library to be the church? How are those spaces used? Um, well, a lot of our, our spaces, when, when the, the deacons and when they came in in the 70s and, and, they, and they started to do the, the renovation work within the, the building, um, for example, the children's room now is used as a overflow parlor. And that's where we have a lot of our Bible studies and um, our, our Bible studies and different meetings and things of that nature. And we still have the, the wooden doors that come together that separate the children's room from the, um, the main section of what was the library, which is now the, the sanctuary of the church. And, um, and, and downstairs as well, we've converted downstairs to a fellowship hall where we have, where we have our meals and, and different things like that when we have programs. So, um, yeah, we, we utilize as much space as, as possible uh, in the building, and, and yeah, we, we, we get the most out of what we have. <laughs> and then in your lower level where you have your fellowship hall, did that already have a kitchen, or did you have to put a kitchen in? We had to put some things in there to create it, to make it a kitchen. We did. Um, we, we had to um, put in a commercial stove and, and certain things within to put in there to, to convert that to a kitchen. And, and what's interesting enough, um, within that kitchen, the cabinets that are there, uh, we believe that some of them are original to the building. Um, we believe some of the cabinets in the kitchen at one time perhaps held um, books or, or different types of articles that um, that are in relation to the library. You know, when I visited it, I thought so too. They look they look like they could have been part of that librarian working space that the library would have had for processing library materials or the librarian's office. Yes. They're de- yes, they're definitely absolutely. look like they absolutely. might be original. Robert, of course, as a preservationist, love your building and think that it's fabulous and you've just done a fabulous job. Thank you so much for sharing this information about your church and its history as a Carnegie Library. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. The Davenport branch of the New Haven Public Library at 265 Portsea Street was completed in 1924. And this is the third of New Haven's Carnegie Libraries. It's now the home to a radio station. The Davenport branch was designed by New Haven architect Charles S. Palmer. Also of red brick, it is in very original condition and has beautiful Palladian windows. It also has a skylight of colored glass. Now let's take a look at some of the other Carnegie libraries across the state. The Pearl Street Library in Thompsonville, Connecticut was built in 1910 and received $20,000 from the Carnegie Library Program. A beautiful temple on Main Street The classical revival-style Thompsonville Library celebrated its 100th birthday in 2014 and was sensitively refurbished. The Hartford Current announced its dedication on February 25, 1914. The headline read, Steel Magnet gave $20,000 for building. Town voted 2,000 yearly, unquote. Almost unchanged from its original design, the buff brick and limestone facade features a projecting central portico, with ionic columns and pilasters. Its first floor reveals classical pilasters and a balanced floor plan with reading rooms on either side of a central hall. 
I was given the chance to look at all the original correspondence that was sent to the library from James Bertram on letterhead from both Carnegie's New York office as well as Skibo Castle, his home in Scotland. In Unionville, Unionville, Connecticut, which is in Farmington, the library was built in 1914 with $8,500 from Carnegie. Located in a small industrial center, the Unionville Public Library is a sophisticated Renaissance Revival-style building designed by New York City architect Edwin L. Tilden. Tilden had studied at the École de Beaux-Arts in Paris, France, and had worked with McKim Meaden White. James Bertram regularly consulted Tilden on library design questions. He was the designer of the U.S. Immigration Building on Ellis Island and many other Carnegie libraries. Diminutive in size, the library is composed of one large room divided between the adult section and the children's section. In 1983, the town council unanimously voted to allow the then-vacant building to be used as the Unionville Museum, a successful reuse that has preserved the character of the building. Now let's move to Derby Neck Library in Derby, Connecticut. James Bertram, quote, told Derby Neck, Connecticut officials that a small town like theirs should have and only needed a small cottage as a library building. He cited the many tiny communities that have been given expensive structures by benevolent persons who had spent their childhoods there, unquote. So Bertram was not a fan of Derby Neck receiving a library. But nevertheless, uh, Derby received a Carnegie grant of $3,400 toward the library. Designed by Yale-educated architect Henry Killam Murphy, the handsome light-color stucco building of 1907 now stands connected to the large addition that echoes the materials and fenestration of the original building. Murphy was in practice in New Haven with Richard Henry Dana, Jr., and was responsible for the early buildings of the Loomis Chafee School in Windsor. In Bridgeport, home to two Carnegie libraries, the East Branch Library on Kasuth Street is now a church built in 1914 for $25,000. Bridgeport's North Branch on Main Street, also built in 1914 for $25,000 with a $25,000 Carnegie grant, is now an office building. In Norwalk at One Belden Avenue, built in 1901, is one of the more unusual Carnegie libraries. Designed in an unusual Elizabethan style by English architects W and G. Audsley, architects of the Great Liverpool Library in England, and the Milwaukee Art Gallery. They moved to New York City following the Milwaukee building. This is one of the finest designs with tall leaded glass windows, bay windows, and fine woodwork. The building now has a large addition on the rear built in 1982, and the central entranceway on the facade has been closed off. South Norwalk and West Haven have two very similar buildings. They're classical temple buildings. They're very similar, but they're not identical. They retain almost all of their original architectural character from the street. They have the same architect. To see photos of these Connecticut gems and to see a complete street listing so you can go visit them, visit ConnecticutExplored.org and go to the Fall 2015 issue. This has been Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank our guest, Robert Kenny. Read more in Connecticut Explored online at ctexplored.org in the fall 2015 article, Connecticut's Carnegie Libraries. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. I'm Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.